0: So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, that's where we'll be camping out tonight. And I've entitled this, Clean or Unclean. And I did that, and you'll see why here in a second, so I won't over-belabor the point. Um, Last week we finished chapter 6, and we saw Jesus forego an earthly kingship, in order to continue in his father's will towards being the king eternal. Uh, withdrawing after the crowd had planned to force him to be king, we learned that from John, that the crowd apparently had planned to force him to be king once they had fed him, or excuse me, once he had fed them. And who doesn't want a king that's going to feed him? I mean, everybody wants someone to provide for them. Well, Jesus didn't come to be an earthly king. He came to be an eternal king. But part of His kingship was that He would come the first time and He would preach that the kingdom of God is had by repentance and the forgiveness of sins and that reconnection between the Father and His creation, between you and I and Him. And so Jesus came to pave that way, to be the way that we could get back to the Father. So as He forewent that kingship that they were going to force Him into, give Him, but really force Him into, uh, Jesus uh, departed to pray because it was a temptation. It was, it was an opportunity for the enemy to say, hey, you can have it now, you don't have to wait. But Jesus was in all points tempted as we are to have these earthly pleasures or these earthly statuses, but he, he forwent those temptations without sin. So um, he sends his disciples at that point across the Sea of Galilee and he's sending them to a different region. And as he sends them, they go, and they, it's, apparently it's overnight, and Jesus is praying during this point. He, didn't, he doesn't go with them, and as he's watching, he sees them struggling in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And I thought it was interesting, because as I listened to myself teach from last week, I kind of missed a major point that another pastor I listened to teach this. He said, isn't it interesting that Jesus not only went out to the disciples on the sea to calm the seas and be there with them, But he also, he walked out on the thing that the disciples feared the most. He took the thing that the disciples were afraid of, which was the waves, and he made them his sidewalk, basically. He made them his footstool. He walked on them. He said, you know what? You're afraid of these waves? I'm going to use them as my path to walk on. And as he did that, he put basically the thing that was their enemy at that point underneath his feet. And that's what the Lord Jesus does. He is the Lord over all creation. He's not below it. He can take care of the things that we struggle with, the things that we're afraid of the most. Even if He knows that we could get through it, He'll still meet us where we're at. He gives us grace that way. But He reminds us in that, that He's in control. We ended last week as Jesus and His disciples had landed in Gennesaret. And the crowds recognized Jesus. They came to Him. They wanted just a touch. Droves of people came to Him because they knew He was able to heal. And so they just wanted to be touched by Him. And I love what, um, what the last verse said. Um, I wrote it down here, I thought. Oh, it says that many were brought to Him, and many came on their own, but all of them just wanted to touch from Him. And as many as touched Jesus were made well. That's what the last verse said. Everyone that touched Jesus, and in effect were touched by Him, were made well. And so Jesus shows his power over, over sickness and death. And it wasn't important how much per, a person got to Jesus. Excuse me. It wasn't important how they got to Jesus because many of them were carried to where he was going to be. But then there were also many that came to him on their own. But it didn't really matter how they came. It was just that they came. And I think that's an amazing point because we oftentimes think that people can only come to God a certain way. And now they can only come through Jesus Christ but how they get to Jesus Christ, sometimes people come with broken legs. Sometimes people come and they're feeling great they're just having a bad day. But it doesn't matter how you get there. It just matters that you do get there, that you get humbled. And the Lord is gracious enough to let trials bring us to the Lord Himself. So verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, how many of you have ever had people find fault in you? I know I have. I mean, that's kind of what we do. We want grace on us, and we want to nitpick on other people. And then we're like, why are people being so mean to me? Well, they're giving us what we dish out. But in this case, you've got these, uh, these uh, Pharisees that have come all the way from Jerusalem, and they've got a message for Jesus. Apparently, the Pharisees spoken of here came from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee, where Jesus is right now. And as His popularity continues to grow, so do the groups of those who oppose Him. Jesus is going out and healing people, and people are going to try to stop Him. Now, I can't understand this. I can't understand why you would stop somebody that's doing good. But these guys, they're doing that. and Basically, because they had ulterior motives. They didn't like that Jesus was taking away their disciples. All of a sudden, Jesus was able to provide for, for them something that these Pharisees couldn't provide. Now, church leaders, hopefully under the power of the Holy Spirit, will have no problem when you don't need them anymore because you found Jesus. That's the whole point of a shepherd, to lead his sheep to greener pastures. The pastor is never the answer to the question. It's always Jesus. And I think the problem that we get is that we can see a pastor. We can see a church leader. But the problem with that is that church leaders, pastors, will at some point, whether they're really nice guys or not, let you down. But the Lord Jesus will never let you. They'll never leave you nor forsake you. They'll be there with you when an earthly pastor could never be there. A real pastor is an under-shepherd. He's not the shepherd. He's not the great shepherd. He's an under-shepherd. He, he answers to Jesus. Now, at the same time, pastors, when they let you down, they're going to answer doubly to the great shepherd. But the reality is is that we all need the great shepherd. So, um, these Pharisees were sent to Jesus by the religious authorities in Jerusalem. They were sent from Jerusalem. They were sent by the authorities. And they were sent by them to kind of see where Jesus stood at doctrinally, His teaching, His, uh, his theology, if it, as it were. And they wanted to see where He stood on these issues because if, they, if He didn't agree with them, they were going to try and shut Him down. They were going to try and discredit Him before His very disciples. Now, the thing that they noticed is that They saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled or unwashed hands. Now, don't get me wrong. With germs being what they are and with health concerns, it's important that we wash our hands. It's a normal thing. It's like, hey, look, there's soap in the bathroom. It's just, you know, how many times do you see a little kid coming out of the bathroom and you ask them, did you wash your hands? And they go, yeah. And their hands are wet. Okay, did you use soap? No, and they turn around and they go back in because it's not the water that gets our hands clean. It's that soap that kind of divides the dirt from our hands. And it's important because there's impurities. There's things that we touch that if they get into our digestional tract, they'll make us sick. And so washing our hands before we eat is a great thing, but that's not what they're talking about here. They're not talking about that. Notice there that it says, uh, holding the tradition of the elders. They're not washing their hands the way that we wash our hands. And so because of that, they go, hey, you're not doing what we do. Therefore, you're wrong. And uh, I was talking to a guy today, and I was debating on whether or not to say this today. But he said, hey, you can steal this if you want. Well, I I thought it was funny. He said, you know, we think that we live in the show me state. It's called the show me state, right? But it's actually not the show me state. It's the I'll show you state. Because if you think about it, they're not really asking him. They're telling him, you're doing it wrong. Why do your disciples not wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? They're not questioning the disciples. They're saying, why aren't you teaching them correctly? You're wrong. I don't know about you, but the best spot in my life is not to be at the spot where I'm correcting Jesus. But we do that, right? We have our traditions. And so we typically want to tell Jesus, no, 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 this is how church should be. When really the church is built by Him, if we watch it and try to change it, we're we're doing it in vain. He's the one that builds the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not because we did it, but because it's built on Him. He's the foundation. And so Jesus here is, is approached by these Pharisees, and they said, why don't you do things according to the traditions of the elders? Now, what I want to talk about is, is the reality of what they were saying. Why are not you washing them according to the tradition? Now, we don't know the tradition. You and I, we don't have the Mishnah, which was just kind of a compilation of the oral traditions of the Jewish communities. It was the rabbis. They would kind of expound, or they wouldn't expound, because expounding means that you're digging in there and you're pulling out the truths that are in God's Word. They were actually making commentary on the Word of God. The the first five books, the Pentateuch. It's just the first five books of Moses. Um, I, I messed this up in youth group the other night, so I better make sure I say it right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books were the law that they had, and that was the Pentateuch, or the Torah. And so they had the Mishnah also that they made as important as the Torah. And uh, I'm not there yet. So verse 4 says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. That's what the New King James says, couches. And I'm like, wait a minute, they wash wash their couches before they eat? And uh, some some translations actually say table. And the idea is, you know, where you're going to be eating. It it had multiple uses. So uh, the main idea is the place where they would eat. So all the rules they were concerned with here were for ceremonial washing, not hygienic washing. Hygiene is one thing, but to be cleansed ceremonially is what they were concerned with. The idea is that if your hands were ceremonially dirty by touching something that someone else had touched who wasn't clean, and we're not talking about somebody that had mud on their hands, we're talking about, for instance, if I was a Gentile and I had touched a coin that you touched... Excuse me, let me try again. If I was a Gentile and I had touched a coin that you touched... I was a Gentile, which makes me unclean. Therefore, if you touch the coin that I touched, you would be unclean too, because I'm an unclean Gentile. I'm not a Jew. And so they would say, they're dirty. They got cooties, you know, kind of religious cooties. So if you're in the marketplace and someone makes change for you, after you purchase maybe what you're going to eat for dinner that night, because they didn't have refrigerators, um, who knows who touched it before you? So when you get home, you can't just use hand sanitizer or soap. I mean, obviously, they didn't, probably didn't have some sort of hand sanitizer. They had soap or oil. Um, so if you, um, when you got home, you couldn't just do that. You had to make sure you were ceremonially clean as well. So when you get home and you want to eat lunch, you must first do this washing as prescribed by the Mishnah, not by Scripture. this little rules they came up with and here's the procedure and I realize I'm gonna get this all jumbled up but here's the main idea. It goes something like this. First of all you get someone to help you out because you had to have what they called half a log of oil which is about two eggshells full in the first washing. They dump it over your hands and when you would with your fingers extended upward you would first you would make a fist and you would rub in one hand as the water was poured over you would rub your fingers together and then your fist within the hand and then the other side. And you would hold your hands out like you were going into surgery. You'd hold your hands up kind of like, you guys ever watch MASH? I used to watch it all the time. They'd be going into surgery. They'd have their hands up like this. Well, after that, they would have more water poured over their hands and they'd have to hold them down so that the water would drip off of their wrist because the water was just on your dirty hands. You don't want that dirty water touching the rest of your hands because you get dirty again. You got to start all over. But then they they would take and they would pour more water after the dripping was done. They would hold their hands down like this out in front of them because you don't want to get it on your legs. They would pour the water over their hands. So during this whole process, they're now ceremonially clean. Now, what did God have to do with any of that? I don't know. I don't think there was anything. It was just the tradition of how they ceremonially clean their hands. They would do the same thing with pots. And this is the one that I found was interesting. For instance, you have a pot that you have food in, and you have it sitting out, right? They didn't have windows and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they could keep it closed down, but they would have flies flying around. You know, kind of like at a picnic. Always got flies you're shooting away from the table if you don't have one of those net style tents. But the problem with that net style tent is somebody's always going in and out of it, especially if you got kids. So there's flies, and they're around the food, and they're touching the pots. Now, if a fly. You know, it could have touched anybody, so it could have touched a gentile. There's the cooties again. So this gentile that it touched, it's flying around carrying those cooties, and it would fly and it would touch your pot. Now, if it touched the outside of the pot, there was a procedure to clean the outside of the pot. But if it touched the inside of the pot, this is a clay pot, they were supposed to crush it. Crush the pot and make it where it's no longer useful. Not just no longer useful, but no longer recognizable. Because if there's a shard of that clay pot that could actually hold enough oil to anoint your toe, this is what it says. Then you have to crush it even more because it's still possibly usable. They wanted to make sure, absolutely sure, that they were clean, that they didn't have any of the dirt of the other nations on them. They were very, very strong. They believed very, very strongly about this. So verse 5 says this. Excuse me. I was going to make a note about cooties, but you guys all understand that idea. They were serious about these traditions, and many of these traditions are alive and still kept today. And the strictest of Jews would actually do this in between the different... uh, parts of the meal. So if you had multiple courses, they would stop eating, they would get the next plate and then they would wash their hands again. But you know how serious that these guys were about this even till Jesus's day? What I said at the beginning was that the Pharisees had come from Jerusalem to tell Jesus about that. Now, I don't know that this was exactly what they knew they were going to have to tell Jesus. They were watching for him to mess up in one way or the other in their traditions but when he gets there he tells them or they tell him that he's messing up but they had traveled 90 miles to tell him he was washing his hands wrong does anybody else see the irony in this they traveled 90 miles by foot or or donkey back or whatever to tell Jesus hey you're not washing your hands right you're teaching them wrong this is how concerned they were about it so verse 5 then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him Jesus why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and he said to them, "Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written." So Jesus enters into the argument here by calling the Pharisees hypocrites. Now, the the word hypocrite originally referred to an actor who would wear masks on stage as they played different characters. The Pharisees were not genuinely religious, but they wore the mask that said that they were. They were just playing a part so that everyone would see them. They were living it out, trying to impress people. So Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29, verse 13, and he makes it personal when he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? He's talking to them directly. He said, this scripture applies to you. And he basically tells these guys who they really are from God's viewpoint. And it's kind of stern if you think about it. In verse, uh, continuing on in verse 6, it says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You guys have gotten really good at this, is what he's saying. All too well. You guys are really good at ignoring what God has said and following what man has said. Tradition is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the holidays, uh, there are certain things that you probably get used to doing every year. And if anybody messes with that tradition, it's like this this part of you just kind of your skin crawls You're like but we always do it that way and that's where these guys are at you know we we can't really relate to the whole hand washing and pot washing thing but maybe some of us can i used to like to try and uh... and this is just a little thing it's not a tradition but i used to try to uh... to help out with the dishes after a meal at the house not our house but at mom and dad's house and i would say hey mom i'm gonna load the dishwasher for you you know what you've been working hard you cook the meal for us I'm going to do it's a little thing, but I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to fill the dishwasher and she'd look at me and she'd go, "You're going to fill it wrong." She had a way that she liked to fill the dishwasher. Now I was just trying to help her, but if it really mattered to her that much, I kind of was like, "Well you're probably right. If that's going to keep me from doing it, then so be it. I still wanted to do something nice. you know maybe I could have bent a little bit and, and did it the way she wanted it to be so I could really actually be a blessing um, but <laughs> That's a tradition, right? That's a way that we are used to doing something. And so we start to take our traditions and insert them into God's Word as if they've always been there. The Pharisees weren't always known as hypocrites. Did you know that? We kind of read the word Pharisee in in the New Testament and we go, oh my gosh, another Pharisee story. These guys, what in the world? But the Pharisees started out good. They had set in place these, these rules to be kind of a fence for the law of God. What they wanted to do is they set up a fence so that people would be that much further away from being harmed because God's word, his, tra- his not his tradition, his law was written for our good. It's, it's the same law that we write. when We say, children, don't cross the street without looking both ways. It's to keep them from dying. Sin causes death. And so he's like, okay, here's how not to sin. But at the same time, we have these same ideas in ourselves. And I kind of wrote up a little example here. It's the same thing that we do in our backyards. One of the rules that most people have in their homes is that their children are supposed to stay in the yard when they're left unattended. So we teach our children, stay in the yard. But when kids are outside, they get distracted. Imagine that. We get distracted by things. And, and we're, we're, because we're distracted, we go outside of the bounds that have been set. We break the rules. They're supposed to stay in the yard, they don't. So, instead, well, first of all, when they break the rules, does that make the rule change? No, they've broken it. It was a standard that was set by their parents, and they didn't follow it. But they go anyway, not knowing that the rule is there to protect them from harm. So, most parents, knowing that their children are going to do this, instead of risking the consequences, which is either pain or death, they put up a fence in the yard to keep their children from leaving the set boundaries. The problem is that because of their kids staying in the yard when there is a fence, parents assume that their kids are following the stay in the yard rule. But the only reason they're staying in the yard is because of the fence. There's been no change inwardly. They're following the rule as a, a result of their being a fence there, but they've, they, they're away from temptation. They have no opportunity to be tried to see if they can actually walk on their own two feet. If they go into a yard where there's no fence, they're more than likely gonna run out of the yard because there's no boundary set. We think that if we follow things outwardly and we follow our own set of rules, that it produces righteousness. We teach a Bible study at the skate park and I was involved with it for about three years. And there's these kids over there and they're, you know, their parents, I don't know what is going on. And I know that kids are kids and that they, they start to learn language from their, from their, uh, their friends. You know, the, the least common denominator rules on the skate park grounds. And uh, man, they got mouths. They say words that I've never even heard of. And not, but they don't, you don't have to tell me. They're bad words. you know. And they, they know they're bad words. They think they're cool when they say them. Well, we teach a Bible study there, and we want them to come to know Jesus because we know them saying bad words is only a symptom of a bad heart. And so we want Jesus to be the central figure in their life. And then we know that the fruit of that will be a change of the way that they speak to other human beings. But the flesh, our flesh, as leaders out there, is we went them. we want them to be reformed. We want to teach them, don't say bad words, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. But the reality is, is if they're just doing it because there's a rule and they don't know Jesus, they will still bust hell wide open. There won't be any heart change. Jesus won't be the the king of their life. And so we can reform them and we can give them all kinds of rules, but it will not change who they are eternally. It won't change them. And so that's what the Pharisees started out to do. They set out these rules to protect people from breaking the laws of God. But what they did is they they brought up rules that basically fooled people into thinking that they were righteous. Righteous. You wash your hands a certain way. You're righteous. You're clean in the eyes of God. But how does God judge? He judges the heart. He doesn't look at the outward actions. Now, when the heart changes, the outward actions will change. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're guided by Him, we will want to please God. We will want to follow the law of liberty. We will be freed up to live out the Ten Commandments not because we have to, but because we get to. We want to all of a sudden. We want to please our heavenly Father. So he gives them an example here of what was something that was happening in that day. Verse 10. It says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift from God or to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through the tradition which you have handed down and many such things you do. So he makes a contrast. Notice in verse 10 it says, Moses said, now this is somebody that they claim to hold in high regard. They followed him because they knew that he got the, the law and the law was given to the Jews through Moses. And then verse 11 is a direct contrast. and It says, but you say, So this guy you hold in high regard, he said this, but you say, he's contrasting, he's saying, Moses taught this commandment, but here's what you guys are doing. Here's what you guys are teaching, showing them that they're not following the law that they claim to be offense for. So it says there, excuse me, you'll see here that in those days, there were many who had parents that were getting older and they needed help with food or money, just like the spot that many parents and grandparents are in today. And in order to get around helping their parents out, they would use a religious pretense, a loophole, if you will. That's what we think of when we think of a religious pretense. Think of a loophole. It's like a lawyer going, yeah, yeah, you did break the law, but let's find a loophole so you can squirm out of it. Well, by the calling of these things or their things, their possessions, Corbin, or dedicated to God, they were able to, according to the Pharisees, avoid having to give their things to their parents to help them out. Under this pretense of the law, this, man, this man-made tradition contradicted one of the most simple commandments to honor your father and your mother. Did you know that you can actually follow traditions that were given or made up by people that claim to be Christians? You can follow their traditions and yet break the commandments of God. That's what these guys are doing. He ju- um, they got around the commandment of God by a stupid and a lame human tradition. The unfortunate thing is that many who follow tradition over God's commandments really do think that they can find a loophole in God's law, that they can somehow fool God. The reality, however, is that no man can get around God. God judges without partiality. In other words, he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't judge one person one way or one person another. Uh, He judges according to truth. Truth never changes. If one thing's true, it's always true. And He doesn't judge based on outward appearance or actions. He judges based on the intentions behind the actions, the heart, the very reasons that we do the things that we do. So Jesus deals with this truth by explaining to the crowd that their thinking is all wrong. He says in verse 14, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. So what what began as a private conversation between the Pharisees and his disciples that were kind of sitting there having a meal, it bloomed into a controversy that now met the ears of all that Jesus is going to summon into the crowd. It's like Jesus decided that he had heard enough of this nonsense, and he said, it's time to set the record straight. And Jesus will do this finally on one day. He's going to come. and He's going to set the record straight. But in this circumstance, he stops everything. He says, hear me, everyone that's around. Verse 15, he says to them very straightly. He says, there is nothing, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there are many people that if you say, if you abstain from certain foods, then you're more holy. But Jesus just said, it's not not what enters into your body through your mouth that defiles you. Now, don't get me wrong. If you eat a bad chicken or a bad piece of meat, you are going to get sick as a dog. It does kind of defile you. It makes you feel defiled, that's for sure. But the reality is, is what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual principle, what comes out of your mouth is what defiles you. It's, what, it's just what shows who you are. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm just angry because I'm Scotch-Irish. You know, I'm just angry because so-and-so cut me off in traffic. But the reality is, is that circumstances don't make you or break you. They prove who you really are. And so it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. Now, this would be completely opposite of what they all understood to be true. Remember that everything that we've talked about concerning the the disciples and the Pharisees, the question that the Pharisees had brought for Jesus and the disciples had nothing to do with anything inward. It all had to do with what was happening outside of their bodies, how the outside of the body was to be cleansed. It had to do with the outside of the pot. And as I was thinking about this tradition, and typically you don't look at man's tradition to come up with teaching, But isn't it funny that what they said about the pot, that that teaching that they had in the traditions in the Mishnah, the outside of the pot was to be washed if it had been defiled. And it's incredibly interesting to me that by their own tradition, that even when a simple pot, if the outside was dirty, there was a procedure to clean it, but if the inside of the pot was unclean, they didn't have a procedure for that. They said, get rid of it. Bust it up. We don't know how to clean the inside. I don't think they realized they really they were honest about that. If they'd have been honest about their own personal lives. See, they had all kinds of ways to clean the outside of their bodies, but they had no way of cleansing the guilt inside that sin had caused. And so they spent their whole lives spinning their wheels, trying to do something on the outside that would make them feel better. But the reality is, is we can't cleanse our inside. We can't. We can't take enough medicine to make our guilt go away. We can't do enough good works to make our conscience clean. We need Jesus. So instead, they completely destroyed those pots. But on the contrary, God does not throw out the unclean pots. I think this is the good news. God doesn't throw out unclean pots, otherwise there would be no pots left to use. He doesn't throw out unclean pots because they're unclean inside or because they're unclean outside. Instead, He sends His Son to die for our sins because He knows that they begin in our hearts. He knows how to cleanse us from the inside out. He deals with the heart, which is where all the issues of life proceed from. There's a proverb that says that. It says uh, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it spring the issues of life. It's the source of all the things that come out in our lives. So keep it. It amazes me that God has seen every thought that I've ever had and in His mercy, He still sent His only Son to die in my place for those sins so that I could be set free from the bondage and the death that my sin gives birth to. God sees that all are unclean and instead of being like a Pharisee and throwing out the pot that's dirty on the inside, He provides a way for us to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And it cost Him very much because the cleansing agent that he uses is not hand sanitizer, it's not oil, it's not water, it's not brillo pads, it's the blood of his own son. That's the cleansing agent. That's what we must be washed in. That's how we're saved. And that's not just a, a positional washing where we get saved in the first place. That's a day-by-day grace that he offers us. First John 1 9 says that if we're if we uh If we confess our sins, that He's righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. His blood daily applied to our lives, every time that we screw up, we have that available to us because He's an everlasting fount. He does not dry up. When He died on the cross, He said it was finished. So as Jesus leads the crowd, His disciples have questions concerning what was just taught. And oftentimes we've seen this. He says something in public, and then when they get away with Him, He's like, what did that mean? Oh, What did you mean by that? And of course, Jesus doesn't say, you didn't get it? Oh, He kind of does. But He also gives them the answer. He says, uh, so when He had entered a house away from the crowd, His disciples asked Him concerning the parable. So He said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive, do you not see, that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but it enters his stomach it's eliminated and thus that purifies all foods that's why we have a stomach a digestive system your digestive system takes all the food that you eat it goes into your stomach it takes all the nutrients out of that food it sends it into the bloodstream of your body and then the rest of the junk the garbage all the stuff that your body can't use or is too much it sends out the other end God's good that way. He he purifies all food by sending out the bad stuff. He gives us a digestive system. Now, there are lots of things we can eat that can harm us. And of course, eating lots of anything is not good for you. But the reality is, verse 20 says, he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, Covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. If you look at some of those things, you know, that I think about, you know, the ones that Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. Adultery, it started in the heart. He said, So what? You haven't gone out and committed a physical adultery. He said, if you've lusted after a woman, You've already committed the sin because it's not the outward action that's the sin. It's the inward thought. And so we even have to be confessing our sin lives, our, our thought lives. We need to take all those thoughts captive to Christ. Um, murder begins in the heart. He said, he said, okay, so you haven't murdered anybody outwardly, but do you hate anyone? That's murder according to Jesus. We're just as guilty in that spot. So all of those things, they begin in the heart. All sin, all sin, it starts within. It starts as a little seed, a thought. But thoughts lead to actions. And so we have to take those thoughts captive. And if, if there, there's unclean thoughts in there, we've got to say, Lord, change me, cleanse me of that thought, because I don't want it to lead to an action. James chapter 1, verse 13-15 through 15 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Those desires that are in there that are not taken captive. And they're enticed. So then when desire has conceived, he compares it to birth. When desire is conceived, that's that seed, desire. It conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. That's the fruit of sin. That's the fruit of unconfessed thoughts that are sinful. It brings forth death. Jesus tells them here, true defilement does not start with dirty hands. It starts with dirty hearts. And the things that were just listed are all evidences of the flesh being in control of your life. They're fruits that are produced by a heart that's not under the control of the Holy Spirit. You can make all the rules you want to try and reform your wicked heart, But when opportunity arises, you will not be able to control your sinful appetites because you haven't put them to death. You haven't weeded them out. You haven't asked the Lord, Lord, get rid of this junk. Instead, let the Lord give you a new heart. He doesn't say, hey, let me change your heart. He says, let me give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And the the fruit of that heart that's controlled by the Holy Spirit, the fruit will be evidenced by what Galatians teaches, love, joy, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So we can come up with the rules, or we can just say, Lord, give me a new heart that wants to worship you. And then when it's surrendered to him completely, the reality is, is that we will still produce fruit. But it will be the fruit of the Spirit rather than the fruit of the flesh. Let the Lord change your heart. Surrender your inward thoughts to him so that you will only be living to please one master, which is much simpler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on that day, when you see him face to face, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's the reality. That's what we're marching towards. The Lord is not telling us, hey, come up with rules so you can protect yourself. He's saying, trust me. In all your ways acknowledge me and I'll direct your paths. I'll change your heart. Delight yourself also in the Lord Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's what one of the psalmists writes. What he's saying is he's saying delight yourself in me. Delight yourself in the Lord and then He'll change your heart and then your desires will line up with what God's desires are for you. And there won't be a war there. You won't have to worry about covetousness. You'll be content in what He gave you. You won't have to worry about murder. Because you won't want to murder, murder anybody because you'll love them the way that God does. You won't want to commit adultery or fornication or any of those things because you won't even want to blaspheme the Son of God because you'll know Him. You'll love Him. You'll have find your delight in Him. He'll be your all in all.